Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast brought to you by Lindenwood University's Hammond Institute for Free Enterprise. Examining market approaches to help solve economic and social issues, Hammond.Institute. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. When we talk of women in the workplace, the focus is often on glass ceilings and wage inequities. But there is another issue that encompasses these two and more. It's balancing life in the workplace and at home for working mothers. It creates a level of stress and inequities men don't often experience. For many reasons, it's very difficult to successfully manage the two roles of motherhood and career in this country. Our guest calls that a national crisis, and calls for work-family justice. Caitlin Collins is a sociology professor at Washington University and the author of a heavily researched book titled Making Motherhood Work, How Women Manage Careers and Caregiving. Caitlin, it's a pleasure to meet you. It's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for having me on today. Yeah, A national crisis? A national crisis. What do you mean by that? Well, the U.S. has what I would argue is the most family-hostile set of public policies of any country in the Western industrialized world. And we know that the vast majority of women who have children are working outside the home today in the U.S. About 70% of them are working, Mm. most of them full-time, yet they maintain the lion's share of responsibility for housework and child care. And trying to juggle these two things Mm -hmm. without any support, such as, for example, public child care, paid parental leave, means that it's incredibly difficult for women to work full-time and figure out how to take care of the domestic Uh, Are you talking about uh, all women who work or really career women, women who are on the upper echelons of the career ladders, if you will? All women. I think that the challenges facing women across the socioeconomic spectrum differ, right? So uh, I interviewed middle class women for my book, and this means that these women have the financial resources, the support networks to manage their work and family lives in ways that I think are probably less stressful than women at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder who are struggling with very basic Mm -hmm. things like uh, food insecurity or transportation Mm -hmm. to get to their job in the first place. This strikes very close to home uh, for you, I know, because you use your mother as an example right at the beginning of the book. (laughs) You're exactly right, Don. Tell us how that worked. Well, thank you. My my mom, who's a hero, uh, in my mind anyways, struggled hard to balance a career that she loved very much in sales and marketing with raising me and my little sister growing up. And I have very vivid memories of the, what's the right word? Um, Really the army of folks that she had to arrange to try to figure out what to do with my sister and I Mm -hmm. when school ends and she still has four hours of work to complete, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I watched my mom uh, struggle to handle nannies calling in sick or daycares closing for, for snow days, for example. Mm. And when all of those solutions fell through, my mom often brought my sister and I into work with her, much to her supervisor's Mm -hmm. dismay, as you could imagine. So watching my own mom struggle really hard and eventually decide to leave the workforce altogether, uh, well, not leave the workforce altogether, I should say. She moved to a consulting position part-time that lacked benefits altogether, Mm -hmm. paid far less, but she could be home with my sister and I more, and I just don't think women should have to make that kind of sacrifice. You speak of hostility to uh, any kind of rules, regulations, laws, whatever. Uh, Why this hostility in this country? The U.S., in many ways, central to our understanding of being Americans is this idea that individual responsibility is paramount, right? So at the same time, we have a discourse here in the U.S. that families are the backbone of our society. We also think that it's families' jobs and families' jobs alone to raise children and raise them well, right? 
But every other Western industrialized country understands that this is a collective responsibility worthy of public support, right? And we see vast inequalities, especially along race and class lines, when we leave it entirely up to families. Children themselves, uh, wonderful economists uh, like Nancy Fulbright have argued, we need to understand children as public goods, right? They benefit everyone when children are raised well, and that's not how we think about them in the U.S. Mm -hmm. We think of them like dogs. <laughs> you shouldn't get a dog if you can't support it, right? Yeah. You, uh, I, I mentioned at the outset that this, this is a heavily researched book, uh, so heavily researched, went to several different countries exactly. to find out how they do it. What did you find out in Sweden, Germany, Italy, for instance? So part of the reason I wanted to do this cross-national comparison is that it's abundantly obvious that work-family conflict is a source of immense stress in the lives of American families. But we don't have to invent from scratch policy supports that can help families, right? Other countries have organized their work and family life for their citizens in very different ways. And so Sweden, Germany, and Italy represent different policy approaches to reconciling work and family life. And uh, I find that they're quite different from the U.S. And very sadly speaking, the American mothers that I interviewed stood apart for their guilt and their stress compared to these European women. They differed with the sorts of work-family conflicts they experienced, who they blamed for it, how they went about resolving their conflicts, but all of them had policy supports Americans mm -hmm. lack. Well, let's take each of these countries and get some sense of, uh, of how they handle it, starting with Sweden. And I think most people would expect that Sweden probably handles this quite well. Indeed, they do. The women that I interviewed in Stockholm, so to back up a bit, I guess, I should say that I interviewed 135 middle-class working moms, as you pointed out, in Sweden, Germany, Italy, and the United States between 2011 and 2015. And the women in Sweden experienced very, very little work-family conflict. Uh, women even laughed when I used the term working mother there. They would say, I don't we don't even have that term in Swedish. There's no such thing as a non-working mother. What else would they do? Mm -hmm. And we can attribute this to not only policy supports for families, but also cultural attitudes that breadwinning and caregiving are equally men's and women's responsibility. And that's reinforced in public policies like 480 days of paid parental leave that's intended to be split between men and women. Uh, it's reflected in the fact that they have a public child care system that has a guaranteed spot for every child starting at the age of one, for example. Mm. Why are they so far ahead of us? I mean, we hear this all the time, particularly with the Scandinavian countries, uh, Denmark and Sweden and Norway, that in issues like this, social issues, they're way ahead of us. Why? Good question. And that's a, I, the answer is complex. I would say, firstly, that they do understand child rearing as a collective responsibility rather than an individual one. They understand that raising children in healthy environments is good because there are future workers, right, and future taxpayers. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, again, as I said earlier, not the understanding we have here. At, at the same time, coupled with that, I would argue that in Scandinavian countries, there's an understanding um, of themselves as citizens as sort of being in this together in a way that we don't in the US. Some uh, some academics such as Ann Orloff have described this as sort of this we feeling that we support one another. Um, when one of us trip and stumble, we help others, you know, stand back up again, not here. No, 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 but you know, I think people here, some people here might say, oh, that's, that is socialism or a step towards socialism, certainly. And uh, we've been hearing a lot about that recently in this country, we the sure concern have. about it. Um, isn't it socialism? <laughs> <laughs> well, good question. I think I could answer that a lot of different ways. I guess the 
most obvious source of evidence that I can answer that question with is the idea that, yes, of course, it's good for families, but it's also good for businesses. It's also good for our economy, right? So there are a number of states that have passed, for example, paid parental leave laws here in the U.S. And research that has been conducted in those states that have these policies show that businesses report either a neutral or a positive effect on worker productivity, on profitability, on turnover, or and on morale. And so you can call it socialism, but that also sounds like there's a, a very obvious business case for these sorts of policies, as well as for the well-being of families. I want to talk about the other countries you researched as well, but also give the uh, our audience a chance to weigh in if you'd like to get into this subject. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org, or if you'd prefer to send us a tweet, do so at STL on air. What is your experience as a working mom? We'd love to hear from you. Okay, Caitlin, let's come back to uh, Germany. Actually, you deal with two Germanys, uh, the right. former, former East Germany, the former communist East Germany, and uh, the Federal Republic of Germany. What, what did you find there? So I found it really important to do interviews in both former East Germany and in Western Germany because, as you know, Don, having mm-hmm. been on the ground there mm-hmm. in Germany uh, during the Cold War, lives there for women are really different. So in the former East Germany, maternal employment was quasi-compulsory. Everyone was expected to work. Most uh, women put their children in kitas or, or child care facilities that were state-run, uh, usually around the age of eight weeks for children, and they went back to work full-time. Mm. Um, in both former East Germany and in Western Germany, women have always been primarily responsible for the domestic sphere, the difference being that in Western Germany, very often women stayed home for the first several years of their children's lives, uh, often up to three mm. years. So paid parental leave in Germany has long given families up to three years of, of leave away from the home, and that was mm. very different from former East Germany. And I found in interviews with women in both regions of Germany that they this legacy of quasi-compulsory maternal employment was reflected in cultural attitudes. Women there assumed that they would work, and they assumed they would maintain responsibility Mm -hmm. for the home, though it was more progressive and akin to Mm -hmm. their Scandinavian neighbors than uh, women that I interviewed in Western Germany. Okay, Italy now. <laughs> I mean, they're all different. It's and that's. They are. Uh, I mean, it was it was very interesting to read how different they really are. Thank you. Yeah. So, so Italy, I did interviews with women in Rome, and again, these are middle class women, and they they occupy a really privileged swath of the population there. And these are women who were highly educated. But they faced immense work-family conflict, and they also maintained primary responsibility for the home. Uh, The main difference, what I found so fascinating about Italian women is that unlike American women who tended to blame themselves for their work-family conflict, Italian women very firmly blamed the government for the lack of supports and for their stress. This was very different from the other countries. And I found this fascinating, the fact that Italian mothers have an understanding of a social structure, especially because they have neighbors all around them who have more more progressive and robust work-family supports. They felt like their government could be doing much more for them, and they blamed their stress on the government itself. So I constantly heard uh, women telling me, oh, about social benefits? Zero. I get nothing, which is interesting because they get a lot more than American women do. And so when I would point this out to them, that surprised them. What about the role of government here? I mean, obviously, I don't think there are national laws that come into play, although maybe I'm wrong on that. I think it would be a state-to-state kind of situation. It is a state-to-state situation in the U.S., and to be honest, I think that's part of the problem. When we have 
states deciding these uh, place by place, this this creates huge disparities in the workforce between workers in one state that have these policies and, and those who live sure. next door and don't, right? But the U.S. is one of the few nations in the entire world that has no mention of the word family in our constitution. Mm. We have no <laughs> national agency that's responsible for overseeing uh, domestic issues that relate to families, right? And to me, this matters. We say that, back, the, that families are the backbone of U.S. society, and we do very little to support them. Mm. And without sort, the sorts of supports like paid leave on a national level, again, we see dramatic no. disparities <clears throat> for workers, for example, at the top of the socioeconomic ladder compared to the bottom, or folks who live in a state like California who have paid family leave compared to those next door who don't. Mm. What about uh, the, the male and this, uh, the, the man in the family and, and his role? Uh, what, what is that? What should it be? And how, how does it work? I mean, obviously, they have, uh, they have uh, an advantage when it comes to the workplace itself. But what about in raising kids? Great question. I think that men are central to this conversation. Work-family conflict is not an issue that affects only women, right? Of course, in heterosexual households, men <laughs> are a part of the, I think, the solution here. We live in a society that has long understood caregiving to be mother's responsibility. And I think we're at a really interesting time, culturally speaking, where men are understanding that they can have, should have an equal role in the household. Uh, and the difference between, for example, Italian parents and American parents, um, or even Swedish, Swedish and German, is that they understood their right to spend time with their child and to raise their child when they're born as being a right rather than a privilege. American parents, uh, both moms and dads I've spoken with informally, talk about them feeling lucky to spend time with their kids. But men themselves, I think, are, try are starting to understand this as a right rather than as a privilege or an option. We are talking with Caitlin Collins, who is the author of uh, Making Motherhood Work, How Women Manage Careers and Caregiving. Let's talk for a moment about men in the workplace, because you have some interesting, interesting observations, and it really is not going to surprise anyone that when a woman comes in and announces that she is pregnant, uh, the reception she's going to get is, I guess, fairly expected even. Exactly right. So... Plenty of really interesting sociological research has showed that when men announce that they are about to become fathers in the workplace, they experience what's called a wage premium or a fatherhood premium. They actually see a bump in their pay because, culturally speaking, we identify men with being the primary breadwinners for their families. Whereas when we associate women with being the primary caregiver, women experience what we refer to as a motherhood wage penalty. Uh, on average, women tend to lose about 5% of their salary per child that they have, which is astounding. And if you compile that over all the parents in our workforce, again, we see dramatic, dramatic disparities in the billions of dollars as a result. And she may not even be hired in the first place because of the anticipation that she could become pregnant. Exactly and right. And that would be the problem. Let's take a call. We have Dan calling from St. Louis. Uh, Dan, go ahead. You're on the air with Caitlin Collins. Hello, hi, thanks for taking my call, and thanks for the program, Don. I listen, and it's you always have good people, and it's interesting conversation. Thanks uh, for listening. My comment is a bit tangential, but uh, when she was talking about child care, and um, my question is really, why when we take tax money and we give it to large corporations, like the, the conversation this morning on 1A was about Amazon, then we call that capitalism. But if we take tax money and give it to health care or child care, then we call that socialism. 
right away you called it socialism. I don't. It's tax money. When we use it, place the same money, and we call it capitalism, and we use it for health care and child care, and we call it socialism. I don't understand that. Why that? Right. All right, Dan. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks for the call. Go ahead, Caitlin. <clears throat> Dan, I think you raise an interesting point, and. Again, I think this gets back to what I mentioned at the beginning of the show, which is that we understand families as a private responsibility, right? We understand corporations in very different terms in the U.S., uh, given the public policies we have available um, and the way that we understand corporations in our society compared to families. But again, we think that people shouldn't, quote unquote, have children if they can't afford them, right? Or if they can't take care of them. The problem, of course, with that logic is that we need the next generation of citizens to be raised well, to pay taxes, and to be our future doctors and teachers and trash collectors. And again, raising them well is in everyone's best interest. Some perhaps call that socialism. I think it's common sense. Did your research uh, get uh, into same-sex couples and the issues that they might face at all? Good question. And uh I wasn't specifically looking to interview heterosexual couples, and I only ended up just by virtue of the way I went about finding folks to interview. Most of the folks I interviewed uh, were heterosexual, though a few were were uh, same sex. And unfortunately, lots of the conversations that I had with uh, women who identified as queer, or as lesbian, and were raising children with other women was that a lot of the work family policies, even in these progressive countries, to help them. Uh, manage their domestic lives with their work lives, uh, they often experience discrimination both from uh, sometimes from child care providers, but sometimes from um, the medical industry if they were looking to do uh, in vitro fertilization, for example. Sometimes health insurance wouldn't pay for that um, if they were mm -hmm. same sex, but they would if they were uh, uh, different sex couples. So I think they face in some ways the same problems and in some ways very different problems that most mm -hmm. of us uh, who identify as heterosexual don't necessarily um, encounter or even spend that much time thinking about day to day. Mm -hmm. After having done all this research, what, uh, what policies make uh, the most sense to you? And I'll go through the list here of maternity leave. You know, what, what would your recommendation be on the basis of what you've learned or what you think would work best? Well, first, I think we need to be talking about paid parental leave and not just maternity mm. leave. As you pointed out- For both out, parents? For both parents, you're exactly right, Don. Mm. You pointed out earlier that if it's just women disproportionately who who use these policies, we are going to see them discriminated against in the workplace. Um, if they are vaguely of childbearing age, we will see these women um, experience discrimination in the hiring process, in the retention process, in when we think through who gets promotions and raises, right? But if it's both men and women who take Use, who use these policies, uh, we won't see these sorts of disadvantages concentrated solely on mothers. So I think paid family leave is a central part of the conversation. And, and how long should that be? <laughs> well, it depends on if you're asking me personally. Yeah. Um, I, I think a model such as Sweden's, where parents have roughly a year to, wow. to spend at home with their children, um, whether that's you know six months or so for each parent, this is what a lot of the developmental research about children suggests is about right, um, and that there aren't that they're, the penalties are mitigated for parents when this leave is about a year. So as I mentioned in Sweden, right now they have roughly 480 days to be shared uh, equally between men and women. And uh, in a perfect world, I think that's what we see, what we would see. I think we are very far away from that. I think any time at all paid these days would be great. Um, even six weeks, eight weeks. Uh, I think Logically speaking, that's where we'll start, and hopefully we can work our way up to something more like six months or maybe even a year. I'm going to try to squeeze in a call. Time left with Karen calling from uh, St. Louis. Karen, it'll have to be quick, though. 
Sure. Um, I had just been wondering about also the stress. I mean, a lot of women are working in caretaking roles. I work at a psychiatric hospital for children. And I'm just wondering about also, you know, if I choose to have kids, how will I be able to balance the stress of work, not just the hours with parenting? And I know a lot of women end up choosing to leave careers in these high stress areas when they have children. Thanks, Karen. And thank you for the work that you do. I wish I had a better answer for you. And this is why I think, as Don pointed out at the beginning of the conversation, I see this as a national crisis. A lot of women end up leaving the workforce altogether because the stress is overwhelming. And many women say that the salary they earn in their in their jobs equates to roughly the same as what it is to send their children to daycare, right? So oftentimes, number one, women forgo having children altogether if they're aiming high on the career ladder uh, in high status careers. Secondly, when they have children and they realize that the bulk of their income is going to pay for, for child care, women drop out of the labor force altogether, which is not a good thing. And what I'm hoping my book shows to working moms in the US is that this stress is not their fault. It is not of their own making. It has political roots, which means it also needs political solutions. So where do we go from here? Where, how do we achieve those solutions in one minute or less? <laughs> in one minute or less, Don. Uh, I think that we need to develop, to develop the political will to think of supporting families as in our collective best interest. As I said earlier about Sweden, for example, we need to understand families, again, as the backbone of our society and therefore worthy of public and monetary support. We can't use this rhetoric without backing it up with our actions. More and more women are now entering the political arena and uh, being successful at it. Uh, perhaps we're closer to this sort of thing than uh, we might have been two years ago, five years ago, ten I years agree. ago. I agree. I agree, Don. I think we're at a really exciting time. Folks are finally talking about issues like paid family leave and public child care in ways they've never been before. And thanks to, for example, the vast number of women who are entering the political arena, these topics are finally on the public agenda. And I'm hoping that we can push this forward. And you're doing so with your book. Uh, Caitlin Collins, thank you for being with us author of Making Motherhood Work, How Women Manage Careers and Caregiving. Her official book launch, by the way, will be February 27th. That's a week from Wednesday at Left Bank Books. It's at 7 o'clock, Left Bank Books on Euclid. Congratulations on the book. Good luck with it. Thanks so much, Don. It's a pleasure. I hope you reach a lot of people. Caitlin Collins. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.